Thanks for joining us on our walk through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We'll see the many cultural similarities between the Pacific Northwest and ancient Greece, as well as being challenged in how we are designed to live out the gospel through the local church. In the first mini-series, we will look to the first four chapters where Paul deconstructs the counterfeit places we find meaning and significance and makes his case for why Christ is the greatest person for us to look to for our status and hope for the future. For more information, join us on Sundays in downtown Bellevue at 9 or 11 a.m. or visit www.doxa-church.com. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Jeff. I am one of the elders also here at Doxa. I serve the central region, which is Seattle, Bellevue, Redmond, uh, with my beautiful wife, Janie, and uh, alongside of uh, Alex and Denise Gioni and Derek and Janice LaFontaine. So if you don't know us yet, We'd love to meet you, and just uh, especially you're in our region, we want to uh, get to know you and know that we are here to care for you and uh, love you well. Uh, as we look at this text, I want to stop and pray. I uh, ask God to, to speak to our hearts. Father, we ask that you would direct our thoughts rightly, that you would speak to us, that the Spirit would illuminate the truth of your word, that you would bring conviction uh, to our unbelief and sin, that you would bring hope uh, in the gospel, that you would set us free. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish your purposes. We know that your word is living and active, and so we ask that your spirit would apply it and speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, if you're with us, we're in week three of a, a several-month Corinthian series on First Corinthians. Uh, in the preceding verses that you uh, that preceded what you just heard read, 
uh, Paul confronted, if you remember last week, the, the Corinthian church's desire to identify themselves in ways like this, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, I'm with Christ, and Tim did a great job, don't you think, preaching that text last week? Yeah, yeah, you can definitely clap. I, I love the fact that we're a church that is, is wanting to raise up more and more people to, to teach and preach the word, and I was blessed to sit under his teaching and learn from him. Uh, I don't want to add to this message, but I do want to highlight something. Uh, when Paul is referencing the Corinthian church saying, you know, I'm, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas, especially those three, uh, he's also connecting uh, what, what he said there to what I'm about to talk about today. Because in saying I'm with Paul, most of you know that Paul was also called Saul. Paul is his Roman name. So that's another way of saying I'm, I'm with Paul and I'm with Rome. Like I, I'm all about power, I'm about position. Uh, and if you say, well, I'm with, I'm with Apollos, well, he's a, a brilliant orator and Apollos is Greek, as you can tell by the name. And so that's, that's a way of saying I'm all about wisdom. I'm all about you know, incredible communication and that's what I'm all into. And saying I'm with Cephas, which is also Peter, uh, and Cephas being his Hebrew name, that's saying, I'm, as you heard Tim say last week, I'm old school, I'm OG, uh, you know, I'm all about the, the law and following the way of the Jews and you know, we got it right. And so that's what's going on there because Paul now is gonna confront that very specifically because he knows they're falling into the ways of their culture that they're becoming just like everyone around them and their focus is being taken off from the cross and being put on their works instead. So he says this at the end of last week's text, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now to be clear, he's not saying it's wrong to speak in eloquent ways. He's just saying, I don't want you to be so amazed with the way that I speak that you miss the whole point. The point is Christ crucified, Christ and the cross. Now, it's really important to note as we look at today's text that the Corinthian context was not an aristocracy, but a meritocracy. And so what that is, is you would merit your way up the ladder, as it were, not altogether different than the culture we live in. And in particular, in that context, there were two prominent ways you kind of found yourself being lifted up. One was through power, uh, so if you went the Roman route, it was being a soldier, being a gladiator, having money to pay for a gladiator that you could then have fight on your behalf. So that was more the kind of Roman way. The, the, the other side of it was wisdom, that you, you could speak well, that you could orate well, that you had good rhetorical abilities. Uh, in fact, just a little side note, if you were to do a, a kind of excavation of the area and discover the architecture that you would find that represented the, the time that Paul was there, you would find the statues uh, looking uh, a little different. You'd see one statue or a facade, a face of a Roman soldier, and if it was a Roman soldier, this, this would be a strong, like really rough man. Like you just, that'd be the, the, the statue you'd find. But if it was a Greek statue of a man, it was an effeminate man with long hair. And don't get offended by that. That's just what they did, okay? And the reason why they did that is because Rome was going, we came in and kicked your butts. Like we conquered you. And every time you look at a statue, you're gonna remember we're strong and powerful. And the glad gladiatorial games are going to be a reminder of our strength and power. And so they were, if you were Greek, you're constantly reminded, we got beat. 
And so, and this is how Rome sees us. So we're gonna lean into wisdom then. That's gonna be our kind of currency. We're gonna, we're gonna learn things well, we're gonna speak well, we're gonna orate well. In fact, the Corinthians were known to have these people called sophists. Uh, Sophia is the Greek word for wisdom. A sophist was an expert in wisdom. In particular, they were people who would go around and stand on blocks, maybe sometimes even outside of the, the gladiator arenas, and they would just spout off wisdom. And what they were trying to do was convince people that they were the ones you should listen to. And if you did convince them, then oftentimes the wealthy would hire a sophist to train their children in wisdom and oration. Because they knew that if their children could grow up being well-spoken, uh, being able to think well on their feet, to, to uh, really engage in good rhetoric, that their kids would have a, a leg up in that society. And so what would often happen is once parents would hire a sophist to train their kids, these kids would travel around and just follow the, the sophist, the, the wise rhetoric uh, uh, of, the, of the teacher, and just learn and try to emulate. And then, of course, they would find other sophists, and they would listen to them and find ways that they were terrible at their rhetoric or at their wisdom and just publicly shame them because in so doing, it would boast, it would build up their sophist and therefore, because they were a student of that sophist, build themselves up. So that, that was going on all over the place in Corinth. And so when Paul is referencing who I'm with, Paul, Paul, Cephas, or Christ, he's speaking into that tendency to say, who is my sophist? Who is the most impressive orator? Who has the most wisdom? Because it was in connection to the brilliant sophist or the rhetoric of wisdom that you would find your sense of standing and importance in Corinth. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind as we dive into this text. Now, another thing that's just kind of a fun little deal, and I, I can't give you as much as I'd like to on this, Paul, uh, this, in the writing of this particular section, and it starts really in verse 17 and ends in chapter two, verse two, it's actually a hymn, and it represents brilliant prose and prophetic mirroring of uh, Isaiah 50, the, the, one of the, of the three of the four suffering servant uh, songs in Isaiah. And Paul is doing a brilliant work here. Like, I don't know if you know this, but later on, Paul is, they're kind of making fun of him. They're like, you know, he's really powerful in the way he writes, but when he shows up, he's not very impressive. God's not a good teacher, not a good speaker. You guys wouldn't probably go to his church, just to be clear. Not that I'm good, but I'm just saying, like, he's worse than me. So, um, just kidding. Um, he also wasn't nearly as good looking as me either, from what I've been told. Um, no, he, he, so he wasn't very impressive in his oratory skills. He wasn't very physically appealing. In fact, uh, uh, he wasn't easy on the eye, uh, Paul would say. Now, interestingly enough, we're gonna get to another person who wasn't physically appealing and necessarily uh, known just for great speaking all the time. His name is Jesus. Uh, so Paul's in good company here. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. But that, that's one thing that's going on. The second thing is Paul is not only mirroring beautiful prose and the uh, and and kind of like good Hebrew meter and 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 and, and rhyme, but he at the same time he's mirroring a famous uh, basically uh, epitaph. Uh, so a little background uh, in 430 BC uh, the uh, the Athenians died to save the city of Athens, Athens uh, from Sparta. Some of you may, if you know your history, this is the Peloponnesian War. Uh, and there was a famous speech by a guy named Pericles who uh, got up and, and just honored those who gave their life. And this particular kind of speech became what now we know as a, an epitaph. 
That's where that word came from. Was the original speech was back then in 430 BC. And then by law, Greeks were commanded to have an epitaph every year in honor of these people that had died. So what Paul has done so brilliantly, and I'd love to, if I had more time, I'd show you. He's actually mirroring the way they would do the epitaph to remember those who died in the way he's talking about Jesus while he's also doing a mirror of Hebrew prose in the same uh, context which is absolutely brilliant. And if you like really love to dive into that stuff, I'd recommend Kenneth Bailey's commentary. And you might go, Jeff, why'd you even take the time to tell us all that? The reason why is because what Paul's doing is he's going, you wanna see how impressive I can be with my rhetoric? I'll show you. Like I'll, I'll, I will show you how I can speak to both contexts and cultures in ways that are remarkable. And if anybody knew those contexts, they would go, whoa, that was amazing rhetoric. And then in the middle of it, he goes, and you shouldn't be impressed with that. Don't be impressed with my wisdom. Don't be impressed with rhetoric. Don't be impressed with eloquent words. And so it's almost like a beauty queen, you know, wins Miss Universe, and at the end she goes, beauty is nothing. It's like a wealthy person going, I've got it all, and I wanna tell you, money is nothing. It did not get me satisfaction. It's like Solomon at the end of his life going, yeah, I, 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 I had the, the best of wisdom. I, I had more than anybody's ever had, and I'm gonna tell you, it's all vanity. It's like, you know, Dabo Sweeney from Clemson, coach of Clemson, after he wins the national championship, what does he do? My greatest joy is in Jesus, and then loving others, and then lastly, myself, loving myself as I love others. And you go, he could have gotten up and gone, we did it, man, look at what we've accomplished, this is amazing, I've been working on this for years. He doesn't, and in some ways, his words are way more powerful, because for someone to get up and go, you know, winning's not a big deal when you have like a, a zero and 16 record, Right? Or, you know, being smart, it's not a big deal when you have like bad grades. Or, you know, I don't, I'm lazy, so work's not a big deal. I don't have to work. Like, that, that doesn't say anything. But when you have someone who's accomplished and then they say that really means nothing, you listen. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, I want you to understand, I, it's not that I'm not intellectual. It's not that I'm not, I'm, I'm not smart. It's not that, I, that I, I haven't gained worldly wisdom. I mean, Paul was a rabbi of rabbis. Like he was one of the smartest men around. And he's just going like, wisdom, worldly wisdom didn't do it for me. And we know that because even the apostle Paul missed Jesus with all of his intellect, with all of his study of the scriptures. He knew the Bible better than anybody else and he still missed Jesus. And so there's a warning in this for us to say, what is it that I ultimately look to for my confidence? What will I boast in? I wanna ask in our context today, where do we find our identity in? What do we look to? The Corinthians looked at power and wisdom. I don't think we're all that different. The, the amount of weight we put into education I watch our kids and the pressure they feel to get really good grades so they can get into a college so that they can hopefully get probably a degree, which in most cases, it's really hard to find a job. Thankfully, the job market has changed, but the weight that I see on a lot of our kids to, to perform intellectually is huge because we put so much in that bank. Uh, we do the same with power and prestige, and I think that's one of the reasons why we see so much in our culture going wrong right now, because the, the mighty have the, the right, and the weak get stomped on often. So I wanna ask you, what do you look to 
for cultural validation or a sense of identity or significance? What do you lean into? What do you hope into? Maybe another way to say it is, what do you not want to be known for? Let's take the opposite side. Like the, the, the Corinthians would say, we don't want to be known for foolishness. The Romans would, and Gentiles would say, we don't want to be known for weakness. What about you? My kids are, thankfully, to, thank to, thanks to my assistant, are getting into Hogwarts now and Harry Potter and they were kind of already into it but she encouraged them I guess to go to pottermore.com and figure out what house you belong to and so they you know I'm trying to identify with my kids and so I went there and yesterday I figured out what house I belong to and you know they kind of ask you several questions and one of the questions is what do you not want to be known for and it's you know cowardice and you know, uh, selfishness and ignorance. There's a whole bunch of statements. And, uh, and I won't tell you what I answered, but I will tell you I ended up in Ravenclaw. So some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Others you are like, I'm sending you an email this week that I wish you wouldn't have said that. And I'm just saying I'm not, please don't do that. Um, it's an illustration, relax. Uh, but, but I, I, you know, if you were to ask the Corinthians, what do you want, not want to be known for? It would be, I don't want to be known for foolishness. If you were to ask the Romans, I don't want to be known for weakness. If I were to ask you, what would it be? I don't want to be known for da, 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 da. I don't want this to be true of me. I, and maybe it's like, I don't want to suffer. You know, sometimes I interact with somebody and you're like, I feel like God doesn't love me because my life is really tough and I'm suffering. It's like, whoever told you that God was going to give you a health, healthy, uh, pain-free life? He told you he'd be with you in it. He didn't promise you that you would get through life without suffering, without sickness, without pain. You know, some of you are like, man, I, I, I'm faithful here at the church and I just don't feel like he's blessing me. It's like, oh, are you doing it to be blessed or are you doing it because you already are blessed in Christ? And, and I could keep going, but I just want to ask you, like, what, do you, what is it that you bought into? Because the world's telling you all kinds of things that are so contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here is Paul is going, you guys, in Corinth, you guys are, you're getting swept up into the culture. Your, 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 your worldview is completely distorted. Your view of the cross is, is really broken. And we got to get back to what it is. And I know to the Romans, it looks like weakness. I know to the, to, the, to, Gre- to the Greeks, it looks like foolishness, but it's the wisdom of God and it's the power of God. And we got to get back to that. Any of you guys ever been to an eye doctor and you, you get those things where they put in front of your eyes and they're like, you know, what's, which is better, one or two? One or two? I'm always like, please get it right, please get it right, because I don't want to have like some big bottle glasses, you know, like, like, and then they do, you know, what's better, three or four? And you're like, okay, does he mean better three or four? Does he mean like, is, which one of three or four is better than one or two? And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What, what, and pretty soon you're like, it's not going to work. And then you get done and they're like, does that look good? And you're like, yeah, it looks great. And you don't know how they got there, but it worked. That's a little bit what Paul's wanting to do today. He's going, I want your focus to be clear. I want you to see the cross rightly because when you get a right view of the cross, you will see the gospel as the wisdom of God. And when you get a right view of the cross, you'll start to see yourself with greater humility, realizing you didn't save yourself. And when you rightly see the cross, you will see others with grace because when you see God's wisdom in the gospel and you see yourself for who you really are and that you didn't actually accomplish this thing he did, then you actually have a lot of grace for others who have a hard time accomplishing things. So he knew, Paul knew that the reason why the Corinthian church was struggling in their relationships with one another, in their sexuality, in their worship services and all the things we're gonna go through in the next several months, you, you realize that it started with them having a wrong view of the cross. 
It started with them thinking they merited their salvation, that, that their spiritual gifts made them better than each other, that the way that they would engage in worship, the more power uh, or signs or pro- pro- prophetic words they could bring, the, the more their standing with God went up because they bought in to power and wisdom of the world as the thing that makes them great instead of the gospel. And so Paul starts here and he says, for the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Paul, first of all, wants to make it really, really clear there are two categories of people. There are those who are perishing, which is another way of saying they are not experiencing the life God made us to experience. They're experiencing a destructive life, a life apart from God, a life in rebellion to God that ultimately leads not only to temporary brokenness, but to eternal separation from God in hell. Proverbs 14, 12 says it this way, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So Paul wants to be really clear. Those of us who don't yet see the gospel, the cross of Jesus as the wisdom and power of God are still in a place where we're not experiencing life the way God intended. It's a life of perishing. And then there's others who are being saved and they see the cross, they go, yes, it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. It's it's my only hope. And they are being saved, and that's important to notice he doesn't say they have been saved, he says they're being saved, which means you and I still live lives at times, those who who believe in the, the good news of Jesus Christ, we still live lives that don't look any different than other people, and it is leading to brokenness and perishing in your life. And you still need areas of your life to be saved, to be rescued. You need God to break in and give clear vision to the cross. And today, maybe that's some of you in particular places of your life. And so Paul is addressing the the tendency to get unclear on the gospel and then to start looking in the wrong place for power, for wisdom, for standing, for significance. Now he's gonna quote from the Hebrew scriptures twice here. He's gonna refer to another one a third time. And in his quoting, he's gonna quote from passages where God's people are beginning to look elsewhere for help. They're looking to Egypt, they're looking to false prophets. And in the middle of that, God speaks to them about their foolishness and their desire to find wisdom outside of God. And the first one is in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is from Isaiah 29, verse 13 to 14, where even the prophets are confused and don't know how to tell people about God. And this is what you read in that particular passage. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, the church said, you better fear God, but you really don't. You just pretend. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And God is in effect saying, I know that you don't look to me right now. I know that you're going to foolish sources to find wisdom. I know that in your hearts you are far from me and you just have a facade of spirituality. But this is what I love about what happens. God doesn't say, so I'm done with you. He doesn't say that. He goes, so you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do wonderful things with this people. Talk about grace. I mean, Paul is referencing this so the Corinthians, would, they'd all know this passage. They all know this story. And they're going, wait a minute. 
We were kind of pompous and thinking we were, you know, spiritual and going to church all the time and using our gifts and man, God must be pleased with us. Look at how impressive we are. We're so wise. We're so powerful. And, and Paul is basically going, no, 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 no. That's not how it works with God. He doesn't look for those people who are full of themselves. He looks for people who are absolutely messed up. And then he does wonderful things. That's amazing. I mean, if you're new to Christianity, the good news of the gospel is you and I don't have to fix ourselves up so God will accept us. We go to God when we're a mess and he heals us. He forgives us. He changes us. And he does wonder upon wonder in our lives. So that the wisdom of the wise men will perish. They'll go like, oh, I guess we weren't that wise. So that the discerning of the discerning man will be hidden so they won't go like, we figured it out. In other words, God's going, I'm gonna do things in such a way that you will have to acknowledge I did it and then give me credit. And then Paul goes on, where is the one who's wise? He's speaking rhetorically. In other words, what's, show me the sophist. Show me the really, really good orator. I'd like to meet them. In other words, he's going, where do, how do they compare to God? Now, I'll tell you what, if you spend your whole life comparing yourself to each other, you're always gonna be either full of yourself or in despair because you don't measure up to somebody else. If you compare yourself to God, all you can do is get on your face and be humbled because you don't compare, right? And so it leads you to worship and it leads you to dependency, which is at the heart of humility. And God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what's going on is Paul's going like, who in the world are you looking at? Who are you trusting in? Who are you impressed with? Where, who's wise? Where's the scribe? That's the Jewish scholar. Where's the debater of this age? has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And now he's referencing, by the way, Isaiah 19, where God calls Pharaoh's counselors stupid. I mean, it's that, look it up. He just goes like, you know, all Pharaoh's counselors, they're stupid. <laughs> like, all right, let's not look to Egypt anymore. If God thinks they're not very smart, we should probably listen to him. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, Tons of wisdom, tons of intellect. And by the way, Paul's not anti-intellectual. He's just making it really clear. Your intellect will never get you to God alone. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly, the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. Paul wants it to be really clear. You can try all you want to be as smart as you possibly can, but it's very likely that your intelligence will lead you away from God, not to God. Okay, if you trust in it as the means of your own salvation, okay? Obviously, we care about intellect. I wouldn't be spending this much time in a passage teaching it, right? But I wanna teach it in a way that we're not impressed with me or, or even the scripture itself, but rather the author of the scripture, and it would lead us to the one it points to, which is Jesus Christ, that's the point. In fact, Paul makes it so clear in Romans 3 to a people who really had the Bible in terms of the Old Testament scriptures. He says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So what he's saying, he's going, you think, and family, I want you to hear me right. If you think your Bible study will make you right with God, you have walked away from the gospel. I know some of you are going like, whoa, you can't say that. We're all about the Bible. It's one of our core values. I know it is. But Jesus spoke to religious leaders who knew the scriptures as well as anybody. He said, you think that by these scriptures you will have eternal life and yet you fail to come to me. And they point to me. 
And so some of you are like, you're doing Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. I just want to ask, is your heart for Christ growing? Is your affection for your Savior increasing? Is your dependency on what he did at the cross the thing that you're getting from your study? Or are you just getting impressed with your knowledge and your ability to parse Greek and Hebrew? Because if that's what you're walking away with, I'm just telling you, you're on a slippery slope towards self-deception. Watch it, family. Paul, Paul's being really clear. This is a group of people who are puffed up with knowledge, but their hearts are being led astray with good things, really good things. And you go, Jeff, we love the Bible here. You're preaching from it, I know. But if I don't lead you to Jesus through it, then I have failed. Because that's the point. It's all about him. I love the language he uses here, it's brilliant. Paul says, in the wisdom, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly. The folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What he's saying, he's going, God wanted to make it really clear that you couldn't be saved through your own wisdom by letting you actually become worldly wise and missing him. So that you would wake up and go like, wait a minute, if we had all the wisdom of Solomon over these years passed on from century to century to century and we God's people missed Jesus the Messiah when he's standing right in front of us, we ought to really begin to question how much we think we can do with our own minds. We have to really be careful that we don't assume we can just reason ourselves to God. Thomas Schreiner says it this way, indeed, God in his infinite wisdom determined that human wisdom would not be the pathway to the knowledge of God. If the creativity and brilliance of human beings led to salvation, praise would belong to the wisest and the most gifted human beings. He, he knows, Paul knows, Thomas Schreiner knows, you and I know if we, if we were able by our intellect to work ourselves to God and into a relationship with God, then we would be more, more boastful of ourself and our own minds than we would be of his grace and his salvation in Christ. So he continues, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, literally in the Greek, scandalon, which is a scandal to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a, the cross is a stumbling block. It's a scandal to Jews. Why is it? Because they were hoping for a, an anointed Messiah, a conquering king, to ride into Jerusalem on a white horse and set them free from the evil forces of Rome. And what do they get? They get a humble king on a donkey who comes into Jerusalem and by the end of the week he's hanging on a cross. It's not what they expected. And they know, because they're Jews, they know their, their, their scriptures. In Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And so, so they have this, this idea that how can he be the Messiah? He, he didn't conquer. He was conquered. He, he's not powerful. He was weak. He, 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 didn't, he didn't overcome. He was overcome. And so for them, there's like, and see, I, I think, unfortunately for us, we, we, in the context we live in, we look at a cross and we're like, it's a beautiful piece of jewelry that we adorn our neck with. It's a symbol of, of love and kindness and grace. And, and whether people are Christian or not, they think it's a good thing generally. But, but you know, we, 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 we got to put ourselves back in the context. It was the means of capital punishment exerted by the hands of Rome. To, to make a spectacle of their power over anybody who stood against them. And when Jesus was dying on a cross, it wasn't beautiful. 
He was stripped naked. He was hanging on a tree. He had been beaten, blood to a bloody pulp. And, and he, he'd push himself up with his feet just to get a breath, but then when he'd have to release, he'd start to suffocate again. And it was often done on the side of a road so that people would go by and they'd see these people hanging and they'd remember, Rome is in charge here. Don't mess with them. And so for a Jew, they're like, I can't boast in the cross? It tells me everything I don't want to admit. That we're weak, that we're broken, that we're humiliated. It, a better way to do it is say instead of a cross, if our modern day would be have an have a electric chair on the stage or hanging from your neck. I don't think you'd go going like, oh, it's so beautiful. Right? And we, we, it's because we, we've so anesthetized the cross. We've so, we've so taken it. We, it's like we don't want to face the reality that it is, it is, is an ugly reality of sin and brokenness and desperation. I remember a young believer who was in our missional community at one point, and she said, I can't stand to look at that cross. Uh, and when we sing songs about it, I, I hate it. And you know, it took me off, it really caught me off guard to be honest. I'm like, what do you mean I love the cross? And she said, yeah, but look at what it represents. And all she saw was the, the gore and the suffering and, and I, think, I think I needed a healthy wake up moment. Like, yeah, I need to remember that. I see the wisdom of God, the power of God, the love of God, which is what Paul goes on. He says, to those of us who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, speaking to the Roman tendency to find power, and the wisdom of God, speaking to the Greeks' desire for wisdom. Those of us who are called, and I don't want to miss this, none of us can, I hope you realize this, none of us can save ourselves. I, I didn't come to faith because I figured it out. I came to faith because God woke me up. Paul didn't come to faith because he was smart. He came to faith because God opened his eyes, literally, to see. Like, we're, we're called. God does the work of calling and saving. Some of you in the room right now, are, you're leaning in. You're like, man, is this true? And do I need Jesus? And what is he about? And the spirit of God is probably working on calling you. It's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Because those of us who have been called, we know when we look at the cross and we hear that a man who hangs on a tree has been cursed, we realize that is true. That Jesus, when he hung on the cross, took the curse of our sin, took the condemnation that we deserve, took the punishment that should have been ours, and he took it on himself. And so, yeah, we look at it and we go, it's not a scandal, but it is scandalous in the sense that why would God become man, live a perfect human life in my place, and then go to the cross and take on my sin and pay for it with his own suffering? Yeah, that's crazy, but it's my only hope. And it looks foolish, but it is the wisdom of God. And when Jesus was arrested, he could have easily used rhetoric. He could have easily, I mean, he's the embodiment of wisdom itself. He could have easily just said, I'm going to win myself out of this. I'll be my own lawyer and make a case for why I don't deserve to go to the cross. But he knew he had prayed the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. So he knew he had to keep his mouth shut because if he would have defended himself, he could not have defended us. If he would have cried out from the cross, they're the sinners, God, you know what they've done then he wouldn't have been able to cry out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. 
And you and I would have no case before God because we would not have an advocate because instead of defending us, he defended himself. But instead, Jesus kept his mouth shut and was considered a fool, considered powerless. Why? If you're God, why don't you call all the angels? And they mocked him. And he knew if you'd call all the angels, we'd be hopeless. So at the cross, it looks foolish. He looks weak. But it is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God that the only one who could give his life in our place did it and was mocked on and rejected and suffered so that you and I wouldn't be mocked on, rejected, and suffer eternal punishment away from God. Amen? Yeah, if you've been called, this is good. If you know this, it's in your heart. And so if you see it with wisdom, then you see yourself differently. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul's kind of going to the Corinthian church. There's only a few of you, actually, who were considered like really good orators and really wealthy or powerful. The most, most of you weren't, but now you're acting like? Like you got this religious pride now? You look down on everybody else? And family, you do, we do that when we forget the gospel. We start boasting in our religiosity. We start looking down on others who don't believe what we believe. We start rejecting people who don't do what we do. And Paul's got to confront that. He's like, just don't, don't forget who you were. God chose what is foolish. I love how he says that. You guys are all kind of foolish. He chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He, he's trying to make it really clear. You've got no reason to stand up and puff up yourself. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this is kind of how God always works, right? I mean, you go all the way back into the narrative of God's people and you've got Sarah who's laughing at God when he says she's gonna have a baby because she's way too old to have a baby. And God gives her the seed that will produce the blessing to the nations. Now, that's amazing. That's what God loves to do. You got Gideon who's scared to death hiding out in, in a well and the angel of the Lord shows up and goes, hey, mighty man. Like it's biblical sarcasm, right? Like, like you're, you're scared to death, you're afraid. And he, he calls and says, God's gonna use you to deliver. And oh, by the way, your army's way too big. It's gotta get down to like 300 because we gotta make sure everyone knows that you didn't do it, right? You got Esther who finds herself in a position she should never be in before the king who's gonna destroy all of God's people. And God raises her up for such a time as this and uses her to deliver the nation. This is what God does. He loves to take things that are not and he makes them something, which is really good news for you today. Uh, you should just be going like, oh, so you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, in fact, the more lowly, the more needy, the more aware you are of your sin, the more you realize that apart from God, you can do nothing, the more opportunity for God to show himself to be amazing in your life. It's almost like, you know, Top Chef or all these cooking shows, you know, they get these really good chefs, they give them terrible ingredients and they go, now go at it. And if they're really good chefs, they can make something good out of almost anything. That's what God does with you. That's what he's done with me. I celebrated my 50th birthday this last week. Yeah. And just, I'm telling you, I'm looking, I was looking at pictures and all this stuff. I'm like, man, I was such a wreck. In fact, almost every one of my pictures, I'm never smiling. And Grace, when I was a kid, and Grace asked me, did you know Jesus then? I go, hey, that's a good question. I don't think I really did. She's like, maybe that's why you weren't smiling much. <laughs> I 
but he rescued me and I can't point to anything I did. It's all his grace. And, and, and what, I, what, I, what I love about God is God knows that if you thought you could save yourself, you would try. So at the cross, he's making a very big statement. He's making it really clear you can't. And he does it in this remarkable way because in the wisdom of God, he takes something like a cross that you would never imagine could be a tool of salvation and he gives a beautiful display of weakness in Christ and nobody's really impressed with Jesus because he was considered one that people would turn their faces from. And what he's doing is he's mirroring you and me at the cross. He's, he's saying, you wanna, you wanna see how weak you were? Look at how low my son will go to, re, to bring you back up. He has to meet you in your weakness. He has to find you in your foolishness. He has to display your brokenness. And he did it all at the cross. If you wanna have a right view of sin and your need for God's grace, look at the cross. Because it is the fullest display of what really was wrong with us and how desperately we need a savior. And here's what'll happen as you rightly view the cross and you rightly view yourself in the humble state that you are in apart from Christ, then you change the way you look at people. Verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus, Jesus is the wisdom of God. You wanna be impressed? Look at him. You want wisdom? Go to him. And, and he's not just the wisdom of God, but look at how he describes it. The wisdom of God shows up in he is our righteousness. Which if you're new to uh, the faith, that, that's God's way of saying there was a way you were created to live and you didn't live it that way. That's called sin, falling short of the way God designed you to live. He also uses the language glory of God, that you fall short of the glory of God. Righteousness is the right way you were meant to live and Jesus comes and lives the right way you were meant to live on your behalf so that in Jesus you get a human who lived the right way for you. And therefore you get his full acceptance, God's full acceptance, looking at your life as though it was Jesus. You get his righteousness. You get his sanctification, which is he is holy, set apart, so you in Christ are considered holy. Not a sinner, but a saint. And he's our redemption. He's, that's a biblical word for he came to set the captives free. To not just forgive you of your sins, but give you power to live a new life free from sin, Satan, and the fear of future death and punishment. And when you get this, and you get this last verse, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in self. See, here's what happens. You'll look at people differently if, if you think you earned your salvation, then you'll look down on people who didn't do as good as you did. When you think it's your religious behavior that makes God accept you, then you look at others and you say they, they haven't behaved well enough. Or you do the other. You get crushed by someone else's better behavior because you know you don't measure up. If you think it was your intellect, then you start to, to, to say, you know, if I study the Bible more, I will actually earn more of my salvation. And then people who can't read don't have a chance. And we look down on those who don't have intellectual prowess like we do. If you think it's about your physical performance or beauty, then when you see people sick or suffering, you think God must be against them. And some of you are in the room going through suffering and sickness, you're going, well, doesn't God love me? Doesn't God accept me? And see, so that's because you have a wrong view of the cross because at the cross, we have one who suffered for us and God called it good. Are you following me on this, family? See, 
Paul knows if they don't see the cross rightly, then it's so easy to see everybody else wrong. Richard B. Hayes says it this way, knowing that if we thought we could earn our salvation, we would try, knowing that if we thought it was about our intellect, we would look down on those less intelligent, knowing that if it was about our performance, we would begin to just be religiously elite and prideful. He says this, the cross is the key to understanding reality in God's new eschatological age. That's really a big word for saying the, the age where Jesus is reigning as king. Consequently, to enter the symbolic world of the gospel is to undergo a conversion of the imagination, to see all values transformed by the foolish and weak death of Jesus on the cross. If we rightly view the cross, we will rightly view everything else. May God help us, amen? Father, we come to you and we have to say that we are prone to be impressed with ourselves or with others and somehow you just shrink into the background and we forget how impressive you are. We fail to remember that the cross was the most brilliant plan ever devised and that's why we would have never come up with it because you are wiser than us. And even what seems like foolishness to us is the greatest wisdom of all and that's yours. And when we see you, Jesus, weak, we, we, we forget that you, you were strong. Who else could have done that? And not only die, but rise again, victorious over Satan, sin, and death. You, Jesus, embody wisdom. You embody the power of God, and you are our salvation. And so we cry out to you, and we pray, would you continue saving us from all the ways we look elsewhere? Rescue us, we pray. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has yet to come to you, I pray you would call them to yourself right now. That you would remind them that you love to take things that, that seem like they're not and you make them in something beautiful. You do that with us. So Lord, I pray you draw people to yourself right now as we reflect and remember and celebrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.